Okay, we ready for the word? Fabulous. So um, the title is The New Covenant. And I'm going to be honest with you, in your program, which uh, hopefully you opened up, you got a program nearby there. There's some upcoming events in there. Of course, you can check those out. And if you're a guest with us today, please fill out the uh, connection card so we can connect with you um, and, uh, and just uh, be there and pray. If you have a prayer request, you can put that on there. But um, the title in the program, because um, Chrissy was pressing me this week, I had a lot to, to prepare for this week. Uh, we did a Christmas service down at the Warren Plaza apartments, and, and so there was a lot. And so the minister, uh, uh, Ministers of a New Covenant, um, it really can't be the title. It's in your program, but it can't be the title because back in uh, the spring, uh, when we were going through Exodus, the, the, the 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which is what we're in now, is a flashback, really, to Exodus. And so I jumped in, and I did something on that, and I called it the Ministers of a New Covenant. So I can't, I can't have two sermons with the same title, all right? I've never repeated a sermon, ever, in all the years that I've preached, and, and so I'm not going to um, repeat a title. Uh, but um, there are some other acceptable titles this morning. Uh, changed Lives, Beholding His Glory, from glory to glory, as we sang, or uh, one of the ones that I liked that didn't make the cut, Grace on Your Face. <laughs> it's pretty catchy if you uh, think about 2 Corinthians 3. So I love this chapter. It's going to be fun. And uh, if you liked any of those titles, you can rewrite it in your program if you like. But the screen says the New Covenant because it is going to be talking about the New Covenant. And we're going to jump right in, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If you want to follow along in a Bible, we have Bibles uh, in chairs in front of you, and they are yours to take with you. If you'd like a free Bible, please take it with you. If you want a free coffee mug um, on the back table, it's uh, yours as a guest. Our guest, we want you to have um, a blessing. So here we go, chapter 3, verse 1, just three verses, then I'll explain. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, Paul writes? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human heart. So a letter of recommendation. I taught high school for 16 years, and as students get to the point of trying to go to college, they would often ask me for a letter of recommendation. And I've written many letters of recommendation um, with the hopes of the student getting into the college of their choice. I never had a canned letter where I just replaced the name. I wouldn't do that. I would highlight the strengths of the student, and I was always hopeful that it helped. Um, I think it made a difference. Um, I never um, knew exactly, and, and I've never been on a college uh, board to know how they, they do that and how much they look at those letters. But it was an important thing. If you don't have the letters of recommendation, um, it's, it's not going to help your cause. But we have a, an, a, an informal uh, letter of recommendation that we call a review. A review. Many of us give reviews of of. People. We give review of products, of places. How many of you read reviews? 
Lots of us. How many of you like to give reviews? Less. <laughs> Lots less. Um, I, I feel like I like reviews. I can pick out a pretty good product based on uh, reviews. I sent out a text this week and an email a few days after that and asked you to give a Google review because lots of people are looking for churches. They're looking for churches on Google, and they usually will Google a, a you know, church near me. And um, when our church comes up and they see reviews, um, I just want to thank you for doing that. So many of you did that. You can still do that at any time. But it helps people find a good, healthy church like ours, Bible teaching, loving people. Amen? Amen? Yes. So thank you for doing that. Back in the first century, though, they didn't have Google. They didn't have Google reviews. But they had letters of recommendation. They also called them letters of commendation. The Apostle Paul actually wrote some of those letters actually within his letters. And he did it to show the people in that church who they could trust. Because there were a lot of false teachers, a lot of false prophets, who would show up at a church and, and say, oh yeah, Paul told me this, and I can do this, and all of that. And the, Paul writes, in fact, in Romans, at the end, to the letter uh, to church in Rome, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria." that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Paul mentions this wonderful servant of the Lord. You can trust her, church. Give her what she needs. Take care of her. Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a church in Corinth, and he's saying, this is why you can trust me. It's not because I have a letter that's written on a scroll from, the, from the, the, the head honchos in Jerusalem, you know, the apostles back there. He's not saying that I have that at all. He's saying, my letter is written on your hearts. You can trust me based on the fruit that you see in your very own church. And he could say that because he started that church. He taught there for 18 months. He saw the Lord open the door for the gospel when he preached it. He saw people come to faith in Christ, people get baptized. He saw the Holy Spirit empower this church with amazing gifts. This church was on fire for the Lord, albeit you know, they were a little bit off, as you see in 1 Corinthians, with some of their gifts. But they were producing fruit. And Paul was saying, that's my letter of commendation. Paul could have brought up what most apostles had as their authenticity, Proof that they were really apostles, deserving trust. And that proof in the New Testament, in the first century we see, is the performance of signs and miracles. If an apostle came in and could do signs and miracles, then they attributed that to the fact that they had been with Jesus, they have the Holy Spirit, and that was their, really their authentic, you know, made them authentic. Paul doesn't use that. He doesn't, he doesn't lean on that as his credentials. He simply says, you are my proof. Your fruit, your lives have been transformed by the gospel, and that's my proof. I was thinking about how pastors today have uh, authenticity, I guess, or, or qualifications. Uh, many of you might be aware, maybe not, um, but the, the qualifications of a pastor today generally are a seminary degree to start. A seminary degree is a seminary, uh, is, a, is a master's of divinity. 
So I brought along, not to brag or anything like that, but I brought along my um, seminary diploma uh, from the Louisiana Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I love Cajun food now because of the Louisiana, no. <laughs> um, but uh, a seminary degree is really three times the master's degree in terms of how many credits that you have to take. Any, anyone who's gone through seminary uh, knows that it is a good starting point for a ministry leader to really learn a lot about the Bible and, and church and, and ministry and everything, but it's just the beginning, just the beginning. I mean, we're always learning, and it took me a long time to complete that seminary degree because I was also pastoring, and it was one class at a time. So it took me a long time, and when we finally, and I say we because my wife supported me, when we finally got this done, um, it was a blessing that uh, I was um, through it. Now, the second thing that most pastors have and should have, I think, um, is called a certificate of ordination. The certificate of ordination is much like completing a doctoral dissertation. If you want to be a doctor, a P, get a PhD, you have to do a dissertation. But that's not even the hard part. I mean, it's a grueling process to write the dissertation. The hard part is defending it to a board of experts. That's the last step to getting your PhD. You have to defend your dissertation. And when you get ordained, the right way to do it, and I know there's ways to do it now online, okay, um, but the way to do it properly is to go before a board of other pastors and elders and have them basically challenge what you believe, question you, um, confirm you as one who is approved by God. And so I did that. I went before a board, uh, and uh, they didn't uh, grill me too hard, um, but uh, they definitely challenged me, encouraged me, and they have been walking alongside of me, um, many of them, um, to encourage me over the years. Now, those two credentials qualify me to stand up here and, and be a pastor, but they don't make me a good pastor. They don't make me uh, trustworthy. That's not my proof that I'm a good pastor. What is my proof? What is my letter of commendation? You are. You are my letter. Your fruit here at Life of Purpose your changed lives. That's my letter. And just like the Apostle Paul, I'm not bragging. I'm not saying this is what I did in your life. In fact, Paul says in verse 4 and 5, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim as any coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. I didn't change your life, did I? No, God did. But he used me to help. He uses all of us to help change lives. That's the beauty of the church. That's why we shouldn't give up on the church and we should still keep coming to the church, the body of Christ, the believers, and encouraging one another and strengthening one another and building each other up and sharpening one another. And when we do that, God is glorified. There's fruit. And that's the kind of church that, that I desire to be a pastor of. That's my letter of commendation, is when people's lives are being changed. It's not, that peop it's not that the seats are being filled. 
you know, there's lots of, of ways to fill the seats. Churches have all kinds of different ways to do that. I mean, if you give me $10,000, I'll do a marketing campaign, and I'll fill every seat in this place. But that's not changed lives. That's just people showing up for church. So changed lives is really the goal. And that's what Paul was saying there. And God does that. It's easy when you serve in the church, by the way, to get a big head, to get puffed up with our pride when we help others. I mean, even, even a volunteer who maybe just brings a meal to someone regularly or, or donates for Christmas to the Benevolence Fund, you might think to yourself, whoa, look what I'm doing for the Lord. You might even tell yourself, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm such a good Christian, I'm doing these things for the Lord. But I just warn you, if that's your mentality, if that's the way you think, beware of what Jesus said. Jesus said this, people who say, oh, I did this for you, Lord, oh, I did that for you, Lord, but in the end, Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you, because their heart wasn't right. We are not sufficient on our own, Paul says. It's not you that changes people's lives. It's not you that has the power to change people's lives. It's God who changes people's lives. And he uses us in our humble faithfulness to do it. Our sufficiency is from God. Amen? We trust in him. We rely on him. Verse 6, he has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is where we begin to flash back to Exodus. Remember, going through the book of Exodus, we went through it, oh boy, it took us a long time. But uh, we were in it in 2022 and, and half of this year. And um, I am so thankful that I went through that book because honestly, it lays the, the foundation, I feel like, for everything that we see in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. It really is the foundation. Um, the Old Covenant, God formalized in, book, in the book of Exodus, through Moses, uh, the Old Covenant being the law of works. He formalized it with the nation of Israel, which uh, are often referred to as the chosen people, which is why the show that's probably the most popular right now is called The Chosen, because it's the story of, of the Jewish people and in, in, in through the, the Jesus coming through that line. So the Old Covenant, covenant, by the way, is just a word for promise. The Old Covenant, the Old Promise, was conditional. It was a conditional promise. And with both covenants, they require a mediator. The Old Covenant had the high priest, the high priest, and it had blood, a sacrifice, a sacrificial lamb. Back in those days, by the way, if you made a promise between two people, it was a bloody promise. They would take an animal, sacrifice it, separate it into two parts. The two parties making the agreement would walk between them. They would look at one another and say, basically, if either of us breaks this agreement, then what's done to this animal should be done to us. That's how they made a, an agreement. That's how they signed on the bottom line. So that was the promise that was, that's uh, typically made between two parties. But when we see in the Old Testament, God makes his covenant, his promise with his people. He doesn't walk 
through the sacrifice with another. He walks through it alone. And that's really important because God isn't saying this is mutual, this is, uh, there's no bartering with me here. This is me making the promise and you either accept it or you reject it. The old covenant of works. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. God didn't call Moses up the mountain to negotiate. God didn't have 15 commandments and Moses got him down to 10. Didn't work like that. God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger in stone. Moses brought them down. Accept it or reject it, people. That's how it worked. In the New Testament, we see Jesus sitting at the table in the Last Supper with his disciples. Takes the bread, breaks it. We took communion last week as a church together. Said, eat, this is my body, represents my body. Then he took the cup, he passed around, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Now, was it brand new? No. It was a fulfillment of the Old Covenant. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, the Old Covenant of works. I came to fulfill it. It was incomplete. The Old Covenant of works. But the New Covenant is of grace. Grace. By the way, the Apostle Paul fully understood this. That's why he's writing this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He's saying, look it, you try to live by the law perfectly, you're going to fail. I tried that. I was a Pharisee, you see. He knew it was impossible to obey every command. He writes, the letter kills us. The letter being the law. But the spirit of the living God, he gives life. He gives life. When you read Romans chapter 7, you see how the Apostle Paul struggled with his sin. How we all struggle with our, with our sin. He says, the law kills me. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, I probably wouldn't have known what sin was. But now that it, now that it says, you shall not covet, I realize I covet. Isn't that how it works? Someone points out something to you? Oh, man. Do you know the law of Judaism consists of 613 commands by God? They have 613 commands. That's just a lot to keep track of, isn't it? And then let alone obey it. Now we have to obey all those commands? And the truth is, is that man can't obey any, even one command. I, I mean, let's be honest, right? If there was just one rule, you'd break it. My proof to that is Adam and Eve. They had one rule. Don't eat from the tree in the Garden of Eden. Did they eat? Yes, they did. We can't obey. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? If you say yes and yes, then by your own admission, right, you've broken two of the Ten Commandments. We're, the law, it kills us. It kills us. You might remember Scotty Smalls from the movie Sandlot. And the famous quote, you're killing me, Smalls. The law is like smalls. It kills us. And God knew this. God knew this, of course. He provided a solution, but it was not complete. It was a sacrificial lamb. The Old Testament shows us that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. 
So year after year, there was a system put into place where the high priest, only the high priest, could enter into the temple, into the place called the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain, and he would take the blood of the Lamb and he would pour it out on one day, the Day of Atonement, which we call, they call the Jewish people call it Yom Kippur. And that appeased God's wrath as well as atoned for the sin of all the people, but only for one year. Every year they had to do it again and again and again. But then Jesus comes. He offers his life on the cross as one final sacrifice. One complete solution. He's the true Passover lamb. His death brings new life. On the third day he rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He's alive. He sits there at the right hand of the Father. And as we see in Revelation 4 and 5, he's surrounded by a heavenly host praising his name. Praising his name. He's even referred to as the Lamb in Revelation 4 and 5. And he didn't leave us alone on earth. What did he do? He gave us his Spirit. The Holy Spirit to live in us. To make us ministers of the new covenant. A covenant that brings life, not death. A covenant that has a glory that doesn't fade away. For Paul writes in verse 7 and 8, If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with a glory, such glory, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, by the way, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So, in Exodus, we see Moses would go up on Mount Sinai, and he would meet with God. And when he was in the presence of God, in the presence of his glory, his face would change. By the way, Moses went up that mountain. I, I remember back in Exodus counting the times. About seven times he went up that mountain to meet with God, to receive the whole law, all those commandments that the, that, uh, the Jews have in Judaism today. I like to refer to Moses as the mountain climbing mediator. He just kept going up there, getting more information. But in the presence of God, who's full of glory, my definition of glory comes from John Piper. He's the manif- glory is the manifestation of God's holiness. Just think about that. It's the manifestation of God's holiness, and it's full of light. Because as we see in Revelation, at the end of Revelation, the new heaven... And the new earth will no longer have a sun to give us light because God in his glory will give us light. He's the center, the focal point of heaven. And so when Moses would be in the presence of God, it's like standing there in the sunshine. You get a tan. Your face changes. Moses' face would change. Every time he'd come down the mountain, his face would shine brightly. I mean, his face was like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know the song, he had a very shiny nose, and if you ever saw it, you would even say it. Oh, you know that song. See, I think they had a song for Moses. Moses, the mediator, who had a very shiny face. Too bad you never saw it. The veil was put in its place. All the other Israelites used to laugh and make golden calves. 
They didn't know poor Moses would have to pray on their behalf. It's about as creative as I can get. My, my wife is actually really good at changing the words to uh, songs. But. So Moses wore a veil over his face to hide the glory, not because it shined so bright and they had yet to invent sunglasses. He hid his face because he knew that the moment he left the presence of God, the glory would begin to fade away. And frankly, he didn't want them to see that. He didn't want them to see that this glory was fading away. This is the problem of the old covenant of works. Well, it requires a lot of work, for one, but the glory fades away. It's the ministry of death that keeps dying, Paul says, but not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 and 13, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is bold because it has a glory that doesn't fade away. The New Testament, or the New Covenant, is grace. It's grace. Grace has a surpassing glory. Grace doesn't fade from your face. Grace is, by the way, an unconditional promise. You can compare that to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was conditional. All throughout the Old Testament, that's why you have to be very careful when you start to claim promises from the Old Testament. We have lots of Christians today that love to claim promises from the Old Testament. But the Old Covenant was a conditional promise. If you do this, I'll give you this. If you do this, you'll get this. But the New Covenant, that's unconditional, it's grace. Grace comes through the blood of Jesus, who is our sacrificial lamb. So you see the fulfillment here. There's still the three things happening. It's still a promise. There still needs to be a mediator. There still needs to be blood. There still needs to be a sacrifice. Jesus was the blood, uh, the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is our mediator. He's our high priest. He opens the door to the presence of God. Anytime you want, you can approach God now. Anytime you want. And I, don't, I know that we just, we just take that for granted as Christians sometimes because we don't understand what it took to get to God before that because we didn't live back then. And so just, just, just walk with me through this for a minute so I can help you understand who could approach God, who could come into the actual presence of God before Jesus. Well, they had a temple, and at the time, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain, that's where God was. So if you wanted to get to God, if you wanted to be in his presence, well, you had to start at the gates of the temple, the outer gates of the temple. And the only people that could go through those gates were Jewish people. So if you were a Gentile, you're out. That's as far as you can go. And then if you get through the temple gates and you don't have, uh, and you haven't been properly cleansed because they had cleansing rituals, they kick you out. Get out. You can't go any further. And then you're in the court of women 
is what they called it. And obviously, if you're a woman, that's as far as you go. Only a man can go past that. And then once you're in the inner court, you now need to bring a sacrifice. That was the purpose. You would go to the altar and you would bring the sacrifice. You don't have a sacrifice, they're sending you away. But now you're thinking, okay, how do I get into the temple? Because now I'm just, I'm just outside the temple, but I want to get in the temple because I want to get to God. How do I get in the temple? Well, are you a priest? Are you from the tribe of Levi? A descendant of Aaron? Because if you're not, you're not getting in that temple. Only those guys could get in there. So if you're a Levite, you get in that temple and you see the lampstand and you see the table of, of bread, showbread, and you see the altar of incense and you see that big, thick curtain that separates the two rooms and behind that is the mercy seat, it's the Ark of the Covenant. You can't go back there, but you're thinking, oh, I want to get back there, I want to get behind that curtain. Well, are you the high priest? No. Is it the Day of Atonement? Do you have the blood of the sacrificial lamb? There's only one. One person that could go into the presence of God and it was only one time of the year. I mean, there's obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. That's the old covenant. But the new covenant of grace changed it all. Jesus' death on the cross tore the curtain in half. Tore the veil. And now we have freedom as Christians, as being in Christ, to enter the presence of God. And this is why Paul writes the last two verses. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He's saying that. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, which God gives to us, gives us freedom to be in his presence. That's the context of that verse. But I know some churches, some Christians, like to take that verse out of context and say, oh, we got the Holy Spirit, we got freedom to do whatever we want. They do that. Don't, please don't do that. That's not the freedom we have. We don't have freedom to do whatever we want, inappropriate things. And that's what they claim they have the freedom to do. Taking the verse out of context. What is the freedom that we have from the Spirit here? It's to enter God's presence. We get to go behind the curtain. Because the curtain's gone. We get to behold His glory. And He will transform us into His image from one degree of glory to another. The more you sit in God's presence, the more you sit in God's presence, the more you will know God. And the more you know God, the more you will glorify Him. And the more He will change your heart. The more He will change your heart. Grace always gives a new heart. By the way, the Old Testament prophets understood this. Ezekiel wrote this he said, I'll give you a new heart, speaking what God said. They knew, they knew the Old Testament was, or the Old Covenant was not sufficient. I will give you a new heart, he prophesied, a new spirit I will put within you. 
I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The beauty of the Holy Spirit is it gives us this new heart that we describe. And it gives us really the power to obey God. Romans 6 will tell you that you're a slave to your sin if you're not in Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you will always, you, you are actually powerless to overcome your sin on your own. You can't do it. That's what Romans 6 tells us. We're slaves to our own sin. But because of the Holy Spirit, we have victory in Christ. We can overcome, and we don't have to sin. So Christians have this, this wonderful spirit within us, this new heart that allows us to not sin. Now, do we still sin? Yes. That's why Paul tells us in Galatians 5 to crucify the desires of our flesh and walk in the spirit. Because the spirit is the power to overcome. It changes us. Now here's a truth that you won't like to hear. Most people don't. When it comes to issues we have with other people, conflicts, we generally want the other person to change. We expect the other person to change. And if you're thinking about a conflict you have with someone right now, I'm betting you're thinking that same thing. They need to change. They need to apologize to me. They need to stop doing this and start doing this. Because that's how we think. That we expect the other person to change. We don't want to change our ways. We want the other person to change. But I'm telling you, the reason why you're still having conflict, if you are, it's because you're not willing to change yourself. But when you sit in God's presence, when you soak in God's word, when you pray continuously, when you worship consistently, he doesn't change your spouse's heart. He doesn't change your child's heart. He doesn't change your friend's heart. He changes your heart. And that's what needs to be done. If you want resolution, if you want to go from glory to glory, then you need to have your heart changed. And I pray God will soften your heart so you can go from glory to greater glory. It's way better than going from backsliding to glory, backsliding to glory. Let's go from glory to glory to glory to glory. And what we're saying there is, is that we will never achieve 100%. That's God, right? Like, we're just trying to become more like him. As a Christian, when you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you now have freedom to enter his presence at any time. You can enter into the presence of God, it, read Hebrews, you'll, you'll see all about this. Jesus is our high priest. We can go into his presence at any time. We can behold his glory anytime we want. We can be transformed into his image. And there's no place I'd rather be. Do you agree? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this message. I pray, Lord, that it hits home with us that as we seek to be more like you, as we seek to glorify you, We've been worshiping you this, this whole hour, singing about your glory and hearing about your glory and how we, how we need to glorify you. But Father, that, that will really only happen if, if we surrender ourselves to allow you to change us. 
We need to be changed. And the way we're changed is we sit in your presence, Lord. Just like Moses, we come into your presence. In your glory, we just behold it. We just, we just soak in it. And we transform. We're transformed because of your glory. Because of who you are. Father, may we see that. May you change our hearts. And may we find reconciliation with those that we have conflict with. May we find healing in our relationships because you will change us. Father, I pray for that in Jesus' name. Everyone said.